Well, tonight's a big night in the fact that we are going to finish up our last feast or festival. We've went through uh, starting with the Passover, and this makes our seventh one. This is the grand finale, if you will. Um, and tonight, if you were present, this would have been at your house, because I just I remember where we're at when we do these. Uh, we went through the wilderness journey. And we discussed a little bit about how not to go, and because that would take all night to go back and recap all that, but we talked about how being set free out of slavery and out of bondage um, represented our salvation. And then we go through the baptism there and the Red Sea crossing, and then we went into the wilderness journey being our life here on earth. Uh, marching through until we reach our promised land, which is heaven. And all that whole wilderness journey and all the things of the children of Israel there, uh, that was a type and shadow. We went through that wilderness journey, and, and that's why at the top of your page there, you're going to see wilderness journey slash <laughs> feast of booths. So I, I took a little bit of this from the previous handouts that we had given out that night and kind of just Touched it up a little bit because uh, the Feast of Booths, which is going to take place here in this last feast, uh, goes right along and it correlates with that wilderness journey. Um, so uh, we'll kind of hit a few things uh, that is not necessarily related to the Feast of Booths, but it happened in the wilderness journey that I think is very important as well. So that's kind of the, the goal for this evening, uh, and we will be talking about the Feast of Booths. Uh, you may know it as the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, it, it goes by both. Um, for tonight's purposes, we're going to go to the Feast of Booths and, and see what this is talking about. Um, with that being said, we're going to go to Leviticus 23. And if you want to read along here with me, you can. It's going to be in verse 33. Um, and if you remember the timeline of kind of where we're at, we're in the seventh month. Um, the first day of the seventh month would have been the Feast of Trumpets. And then on the 10th day of that month would have been the Day of Atonement, which we did last time we gathered. And this is going to take place on the 15th. So you have three, three of these festivals and feasts going on in a 15-day period, starting with the first and then ending on, well, the start of this one's on the 15th. It runs for uh, several days here, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But this is the Feast of Booths, and here's what this is going to represent. The Feast of Booths is going to be a time for them to reflect on their journey in the wilderness. Um, when they were in the wilderness, they stayed in tents. And, and that's going to be what this is going to be symbolizing here. And if you start to think about it as their wilderness journey being a type and shadow of our life on earth, marching toward the promised land, which is our eternal home, um, you start to see how this is going to play out and how this is fulfilled uh, in Christ when He came, but also still yet to be fulfilled in its ultimate finality. Um, and that will take place when we enter the promised land, uh, which is our eternal home. So with that being said, Leviticus 23, uh, verse 33 is where we'll start. And it has just finished up with the Day of Atonement. And in verse 33, it says this, Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth of this seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire 
to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. These are the appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations to present offerings by fire to the Lord, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each day's matter on its own day. Besides those of the Sabbaths of the Lord, and besides your gifts, and beside all your votive and freewill offerings which you give to the Lord, on exactly the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days, with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now, this is going to come back. So we're going to come back to verse 40 here at the very end of things. So just keep this in your mind. Now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brooks, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days, all the native born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. So that is our most concise, most comprehensive section speaking about the Feast of Booths. And you see the idea here is that they're going to come and they're going to live in these booths or tents. And it's going to be for seven days that they're going to do this. And it's going to be a reminder how he brought them out of the land of Egypt and how they lived in tents in their wilderness journey. So that's going to be the primary focus of tonight. But I would never want to start without praying uh, before we get started, okay? Lord, we thank you for this wonderful evening, God. Thank you for the time that we can come in the, in the middle of the week and we can gather and, uh, with your people and we can open your word. Uh, it's the only truth in life. It says that uh, we sanctify them by your truth and your word is truth. And Lord, we just want to hang on and cling to that which is good. We want to cling to your word. And God, we ask that it would change us tonight. It would, it would stir in our souls and it would, it would let us see you more uh, beautifully and more powerfully and, and more transcendent than you've ever been. And that you would just let us take this, Lord, and apply it to our lives and, and help us to grow in fear and knowledge and sanctification. Lord, guide us tonight, we pray. And thank you for these words. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so let's kind of get into this a little bit. Here's the story. So they've been released out of bondage, out of Egypt, and now they are on this wilderness journey, and their goal is to get to the promised land. That is their, that's their, that's their end result here. And, and, and we know here as we travel and we're pilgrims on this earth, we, we just got through with First Peter. We know we're exiles. We know that this isn't our true home, and our journey is every day that we're going our eyes are to be set on our future home and in our promised land, which is the New Jerusalem. And, and, and this whole feast that they are to come and they're going to celebrate it and, and they're going to be in Jerusalem and it's going to be seven days. They're going to make these tents and they're going to reside in them. Think about that feast. Like, what are you going to do for seven days? We're going to sit in these tents. 
We're going to live in these tents for a whole week, and it's going to be a reminder of how you lived in tents, the children of Israel lived in tents for their whole wilderness journey. Now, why would they live in tents for their whole wilderness journey? Because this whole thing was nomadic. They weren't home. There was no time to sit down and be like, this is our permanent home. This is, the, this is the promised land that he's spoken about. This was a nomadic journey. And then wherever they would go, they would set up their tents and it would be centered. Uh, the center of that camp would be the tabernacle. And that's important because I want you to see how this works is that for all these years, they did not have a permanent home. They were, like I said, nomadic through this land. And then when God would bring them to the spot where they wanted to be, then they would set up camp, if you will. And if you, we talked about last week how many of good intentions to read the Bible all the way through stopped really hard in Leviticus. Well, if you can get through Leviticus, and you, you, Numbers is waiting on you. And Numbers is lost of many of men and women too because that's not the, the casual read. But it's important because in the first few chapters of the book of Numbers, it tells us some very important things. And, and one of the things, if you have time to go read, is it tells us how the camp was set up. It tells us that each of the tribes had different locations, that one was to be on the north and the south, and they had different geographical locations. It wasn't just, we're going to park here. And remember how they were led. They were led by the pillar of cloud and fire. This is wherever God would lead them, uh, they would go. And wherever uh, God would stop them, they would stop and they would set up this tabernacle, which was where the sacrifices were offered. We read about this last week, the Day of Atonement, the sacrifices, the, uh, the ark, the Holy of Holies. This is the dwelling place of God. This is his tabernacle. This is where the presence of Yahweh dwelt among his people. It was in the tabernacle. And in the center of the camp was this tabernacle. And then all the tents and all the camps would set out about it according to the way that it's recorded in the book of Numbers. It wasn't first come, first serve, I'll set up here, I'll set up here. You had designated spots based on the tribe and different factors. And, and we see this. So that's a pretty interesting read. If you want to go to Numbers, you got something to look forward to there. You can see how the tribes were set up around the tabernacle or the dwelling place of God. More, more detailed into that is the closest to the tabernacle was those that were of the line of Levi. That's the priesthood. So of all these tribes that were set up, the ones that had the closest proximity to the tabernacle was the group of Levites. And then you had the different kinds of Le or the different sections of Levites. You had the Kohathites and the, the Gershonites and the Marianites. And if you remember the guy who, who reached out his hand, Uzzah, to stop the ark from falling and he was dropped dead instantly, he was a part of the Kohathites. And that's important. Again, this is why Numbers is so important. Because in the book of Numbers, it tells you that the different sections of Levites had different roles when it comes to moving or transporting the temple or the tabernacle. The Kohathites were the ones who were to be handling of the ark and of these, of these sacred items. All of his life, this guy who touched the ark knew he was trained. Don't touch it. He was part of the Kohathites. The Kohathites had a certain place around the, the tabernacle. And so you see that this is a bunch of tents in the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God being in the center. And for this time in the wilderness, they lived in tents. 
it was nomadic. That was not their home. That's going to come back to, to play that because as we begin to, not to revisit this, but to touch on it a little bit, that as we're on this journey, on marching to the promised land, the Bible also tells us that we live in tents. That's pretty amazing. That you see this Old Testament that they're living in tents. We see the Feast of Booths that for seven days they're to live in these tents as a reminder that they were living in tents before they made it to the promised land. And you say, well, how do we live in tents? I live in a house. Looking at a house now, this isn't a tent. Well, let's look and see what Paul tells us in the book of 2 Corinthians. In verse 1 of chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 5, the Apostle Paul uses the word tense as an analogy to our bodies. He says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our home, is tore down. Why would he say that? Why would he say that we live in an earthly tent? Because just like the children in the wilderness, the people of Israel in the wilderness, that was not their home. It was nomadic. They were getting to the promised land. That was the ultimate goal. As a Christian, as a believer, that should be our ultimate goal. And the fact that the, the Bible tells us that we live in earthly tents too. Why? Because this is in our home and this is in our glorified body. We are nomadic. We are exiles going through this land. And that's, what the, that's the analogy that Paul's using here. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is tore down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be temporary there, won't it? But here it's not. That's why he makes this analogy to these tents, which is, for indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge." So we see this, that, that, that our body is considered a tent. We are nomadic, pushing through to the promised land. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Now, I read that verse because I want you to get this picture, that in the middle of the camp is the tabernacle. It is the dwelling place of Yahweh. It is of God. This is where he dwelt with his people and all the tents would be sectioned off around it. Now he tells us that as we're on this journey, we're living in tents like they were living in tents. They were living in tents before they were got to the physical promised land. We're living in tents, which are our bodies, until we get to the eternal promised land. And in the middle of this tent set up was the tabernacle of God. It's where he dwelled. And now he goes a step further and he says, now listen to this. These tents that you are, he's referring to, he also makes this analogy that it's the temple. And now this is where God dwells. Not just in the tabernacle, not just in the Holy of Holies, not just in this little section of real estate of land. It is in every believer that he dwells. He dwells in the tabernacle or the tent 
of his people. You say, well, that's interesting. The tent, tabernacle, I get it. You know, we're pushing through this life. But how does this refer to Jesus? How does this come into the New Testament? And how does this work? Well, what's interesting is one of the greatest, biggest things that are overlooked, I think, by not knowing some of the, the, the Greek language or the Greek wordage here comes in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is packed with so much. I want to draw your attention to verse 14. Maybe you've heard this before. And it says, and the word, talking about Jesus, became flesh. He did. That's the hypostatic union. Truly God, truly man. Two natures, the divine, the human, into the God-man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. If we just read that, we miss the whole beauty of what has just been said. Have you heard that before? And the, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yes, he did. He came down to earth and he, 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 he came in the form of man and God and man. And, and, and what an amazing thing that is in the hypostatic union. But we have to look a little farther. That, that word dwelt is where we get the word eskinosin, which literally means to have one's tent with, to dwell, or to tabernacle. How amazing is that? That when you go to the Greek and think about the Old Testament, they were living in tents, and in the center was God, and it was His tabernacle, and it was the presence of Yahweh. And He tabernacled them. He was there with them as they were on this journey. And then we come to the New Testament, and he says, and the word became flesh. And what did he do? He, did, he tabernacled. He pitched his tent with, if you will. That he came to this earth and dwelled, tabernacled. The fullness of his glory came when he was on this earth. How amazing is that? That changes the whole complexity of that verse. Changes the whole complexity of that meaning. Now you see the tabernacling and the tents and, and the, the dwelling of God in the Old Testament. And now you see that he comes to the New Testament. And when he comes, he says that he's tabernacling and having his tent with and dwelling with his people. Well, let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. It says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And what does that mean? God with us. He tabernacled. He pitched his tent. He dwelt among his people. He did it in the Old Testament, and now we see it when he came. While on earth, we see that same imagery come to pass. You see, the, the Feast of Booths, which we're going to get to at the very end of this, was for these people to live in these tents, these booths, if you will, for seven days, so their mind would go back and think about how they lived in tents on their journey. And who was in the middle of that camp? It was God. His tabernacle. He was with them. They wake up in the morning. They come out their tent. There's the glory of God. There's the tabernacle. There's the presence. He's there. This is where he dwelt among his people. 
It was the center. It was the focus, which should be in our lives as well, that there'd be nothing greater in our minds and our attention than Him. The Bible goes on to say that they received the direction and guidance on where to go, like I said, by the pillar of cloud and fire. And, and we, we see that this did not stop until when? When did that stop? When did the, the, the pillar of cloud and fire stop leading them? When they made it to the promised land. That's when it stopped. And this is what we call a theophany. And, and this, is, this is an amazing thing if you start to look at it and study it, that a theophany is this manifestation of God. And, and a lot of times in the Bible, it's by fire. Let me give you an example. Do you remember when Moses was at the burning bush? And the voice came out of the bush. He said, Ego, I am, I am. I am Yahweh. It's me. I am. That was a theophany where God's presence was there and he was speaking from that bush. We see it also in Genesis 15, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. If you've been to any of our services in the past, specifically when we were working through some of this, you've heard this. But in Genesis 15, that there is a theophany uh, where that God is making this promise to Abraham. And he's telling Abraham or Abram at that time, he says, if you want to know how you can know that my promise to you is final and permanent, I'll tell you how we'll do it. And I always say this when I come to this text. And, you know, we, we've came a long way from Genesis 15 because if I tell you something and you don't believe me, how can I really make you believe me? I can tell you the same thing again. But here's how we really show that we mean business in today's society. Do you pinky promise? Yes, my words didn't change one bit, but now that our small digits are interlocking, you must believe me now. This is what we do. I say the same thing. Now our pinkies are locking, and now you believe me? This is how we really show our word to somebody in today's society. Well, I've got, I'm going to read this here because I love it and, and just humor me. You think that's crazy, and that may not make sense to you of the pinky promise. But I'm going to show you and I'm going to read to you. Some of you all know this, but I want you to hear how God is going to show Abram that he's serious. And if you don't, if you've never heard this, it's going to sound wild. It's going to sound crazy. I'll read it to you in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, 6, what a great verse. He believed in the Lord. It was reckoned to him as righteous. That was his justification by faith alone. And he said in verse 8, Oh Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, here's what he says. He's just giving them this promise of a son. He doesn't have a son. He's getting up in age. He says, Lord, how will I know? Can you give me a sign? And here's what God says to him. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Is that how you're going to start? Really getting your word across? This is what God tells him to go get. A heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, young pigeons. 
doesn't stop there. Verse 10, he says, Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but did not cut the bird. So now we have this other scene. He tells Abram to go get these animals. He brings him the animals, and then the animals are cut in half. And half of them are, the half, one half of the body's here, the other half is here. And in antiquity, what they would do is that they would make a walkway to where you could walk in between the halves of these dead carcasses. Piggy promise isn't looking too bad now, is it? Quick and easy, gets to the point. What is God trying to prove here? What is he saying to Abram? You want to know how I'm going to guarantee my word? Go get these animals. We're going to kill them. We're going to cut them in half. Verse 11, the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Verse 13, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Talking about what had happened in Egypt. And that came to pass. But I will judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And here is the answer. Here is the promise of God. You ready? If you're familiar with R.C. at all, this is his favorite chapter in all the Bible, Genesis 15. He would tell the story that he would go to conferences, and we're getting ready to go there, so fingers crossed that we stay healthy and the weather's warm. We go down there, but at his conferences, people would come up with his Reformation study Bible, and they would want him to sign his favorite verse in the book. And he said, I would, a lot of times, write Genesis 15, verse 17. People would say, thank you very much. They'd go home and they'd read it. Now, if someone said, this is my favorite verse in the Bible, I'm going to read it to you. Here's what his favorite verse in the Bible was at one point. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. There it is. Isn't that a good verse? Let me tell you something. That verse right there should give every believer the utmost peace in their soul. Because what has just happened here is the immutable promise of God upon everyone who would believe by faith in the promise of his son. You say, I don't get it. You remember the scene? The animals were killed. The carcasses were cut in half and there was a, a, a walkway in between. And, and in antiquity, how they would make uh, deals or, or covenants with each other is that they would do this. They would, they would take animals and they would cut them in half. And then the two parties that were making the, the promise to each other, they would walk in between the animals that were killed as to say, as we're walking down in between these animals, if we don't keep our end of the deal, let it be to us as it is to these animals. 
That's the point. The two people would walk, and it would be a promise. Pretty much bring us death if we don't keep with this promise. However, there's something mysterious goes on here. Abram doesn't walk through the middle of this. But what does come passing through this? A smoking oven and a flaming torch. Just like at the burning bush, that was a theophany of God. And in this case, this is a theophany of God. That God Himself is passing between this these two animal, the parts of the animals that are cut in half, he himself is passing through. And you know what he's saying? Abram, do you want to know how serious I am? Do you want to know how you can take it to the bank that this promise is eternal? Is that I myself am going to pass between these animals, not you, but me. You know what he's saying? Abram, listen. If this promise does not come to pass to you and all that who believe, the only way that can happen is if I stop being God. I'd have to die. If I don't keep the promise, then let it be to me like it is these animals and let me die. Guess what? The God that we serve is eternal. That's why Abram could take it to the bank, that it was the presence of Yahweh in this theophany who passed between those carcasses as to say, I can swear by nothing higher than myself, so I'm swearing by myself. And if you believe in this promise, Abram, then it will be righteousness for you. And those who are 2,000 years later who believe in the promise of this son of God who would come, and if you put faith in that as a child of Abraham through that faith, it's guaranteed to you too. You see the beauty in that? That's a theophany. And while we're there, Hebrews 6 sums that up really nicely. Let me read this. To follow up on that, <coughs> Hebrews chapter 6 says this in verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. He can't be like, hey, I'm going to swear by the sun. <laughs> I made that. I can't swear by the universe. Made that too. What's the highest thing that I can swear by? It's me. And I'm going to be the one, Abraham, not you. This isn't your deal. You go this way. I'm sovereign in this. I'm going to pass by myself. And if I don't keep my promise, let it be to me like these carcasses. Let me die. You don't have to worry about that promise ever going bad because God lives forever. It says, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise for men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them an oath given as confirmation is that end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, 
a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest, last week we talked about that, forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You see the beauty of that? See, he came in fire, in the torch. That's a theophany. I said all that to say this, that the presence of God was there in that theophany, in the pillar of fire, and the cloud. It was God who directed them and led them through their journey. They would go and they would follow that theophany. They would follow the presence and the leadership of God. And when they came to the spot where God wanted them to be, it would stop and they would stop. They may stay just a little bit of time here or they may stay a long period of time, a place, but they never knew. It would be wherever God directed by his sovereign decree, when and how. Sounds like life, doesn't it? How does he lead us now? He doesn't lead us by a pillar of cloud or a fire. How does he lead us? By his Holy Spirit that dwells where? Oh, you remember that tent we talked about earlier at the start? The tabernacle of his believers? He doesn't lead us by fire and cloud anymore in that wilderness journey. But he dwells with us, in us, and leads us by himself still. But this time, it's by the Holy Spirit. And maybe you can attest to this. Have you ever been, I hate using this word, I hate using this word because like this is a, the new apostolic reformation, they use this all the time, so just humor me. Have you ever been in a season in life? I feel like I hate saying that. I don't know other word to say it. Have you ever been in a season in life where you're like, I'm ready to move? Like, God, I don't know what you're trying to prove here in this point. <laughs> like, I'm stuck in this. Like, this is going on. I, I feel like I'm just in this and I'm ready to go to the next level. I'm ready to go to the next thing. Maybe it's the, this season of, of suffering, which we're to steward. But how many times have we been like, come on, God, hurry up. Let's go. Let's move along. When they were encamped around the tabernacle, they were dependent on God and his timing to lead them to the next place. They would go where he led them, and then he would set them down and say, this is where you're going to be. And you're going to be here as long as I see fit. And we're not going to move a second early. We're going to not move a second late. You're going to be where you are on this earth according to my sovereign decree. That's a a lesson for all of us, isn't it? That you're not going to move along to the next thing in life until God has fulfilled that purpose in that season and it's time to move on. You're not going to be there a second too long. You're not going to be there a second too late. You're going to be led at the proper time. Because remember, the children of Israel, as they were roaming through this wilderness, they were following God. And that's what we do with the Holy Spirit. And i got to be honest with you. If I'm out leading this train, it ain't going to go well. But we follow behind the sovereign God of this universe, wherever He leads us whether it's really bumpy, really hilly, maybe mountainous, maybe in the valley, maybe across some turbulent water, wherever it is. The question comes down to this. Do you trust God? Do you think he knows the map to the promised land? Do you think he knows what he's doing? The answer to that is a resounding yes. This is what it meant by they were being led they would pick up their tent, and they would go to the next place. We don't pick up our tents. We travel in our tents. 
We walk to the next season. We walk to the next destination. We walk to the next thing. But in our earthly tents, they also in this wilderness journey that they received manna, didn't they? From heaven. It was one of the things that was in the Ark of the Covenant. They received manna from above and that was their food. When did that stop? When did, the, when did the manna from heaven stop? Joshua chapter 5 tells us this. It stopped when they entered the promised land. They didn't need it anymore. And then John 6 goes on to just up the ante. What does he say? He says he's the bread of life. He says that, that Mo, Moses didn't give you that bread. I gave you that bread. I'm the bread of life. I'm the spiritual bread. And he gives us his word to feast on. He gives us his spirit to feast on. And one day when we enter the promised land, that we won't be looking at pages. We'll be looking at the true word himself. You see, it'll all, it all came to a culmination when they entered the promised land. And now we get to feast on his word, which is our lamp to our feet, isn't it? It's our guide in this world. Now, he also... Israel received water from a rock. Now, why is this important? Let me, let me draw your attention to John 7 really quickly. John 7, they are, they're having a feast in John 7. And the, the feast that they're celebrating in John 7 is the Feast of Booths. So if you want to see a New Testament um, reference to the Feast of Booths, it's in John 7. And what's interesting here in John 7 is one of the parts of the ceremony they would do is that it is recorded that they would have this ceremony, a water ceremony, and then they would involve the priest drawing water from the pool of Siloam and then pouring it near the basin and an altar. And here, think about this. The Feast of Booth was to what? To commemorate them living in tents on their journey. And here's this water portion of this ceremony. Where did they receive water at? In the wilderness. Well, they came about it by supernatural means. I know one in particular time and two to be more matter of fact. So listen to how this plays out in, in John chapter 7. Let's pick up in verse 37. Remember, the water is representing how they had water from the rock. They were to look back at the times that God provided for them in the wilderness. This is what the Feast of Booths is about. This is what's going on in John chapter 7. And then he comes up with this verse and this word in verse 37. It says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That's what he says. Now he's talking about spiritual water. He's saying, listen, you're looking back. It's the Feast of Booths. You're looking back in the wilderness, and you remember how I supplied you water, but I'm going to up the ante a little bit more and tell you that I'm the spiritual water. But was Christ also present when they were in the wilderness? Yes, he was. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us this very clearly. I know we're hopping around a little bit, but we're trying to get through a lot. <clears throat> 1 
1 Corinthians chapter 10. It tells us where the water came from. Now, where does this spiritual water, this living water, come from in John chapter 7? Jesus said, it's me. I'm the source. Now, listen to what 1 Corinthians 10 says. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. Verse 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. So here he says, he's making a reference to the Old Testament. He's saying they drank from that spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. Let me draw your attention to that spiritual rock of Christ, and I want to draw your attention to the rock that they received water from. We find this first account in Exodus 17. You remember that story? How they were grumbling and complaining that they did not have anything to drink. They murmured and complained a lot. Exodus 16, he provides manna. And then in chapter 17, we see the story of the water in the rock. In verse 6, we see the primary point of this. And he says, Behold, I will stand before the rock. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and they had, they had water. Moses says, take his staff. The Lord says, you hit the rock, you strike the rock, and water will come out. And they did that. That's very true. But then we go to Numbers 20. And we see that this is what got Moses into trouble. See another story in Numbers. Numbers got a lot of good stuff. In Numbers chapter 20, they were thirsty again. But this time something happened. Moses was told to speak to the rock. Not strike it, speak to it. What did he do? He struck it. That was a no-no. And again, I, I know the cry of our human hearts. You mean all he did was strike it instead of speaking to it? And now he can't enter the promised land? What do you want to say? That's not fair. <laughs> okay. It's more than fair. One act of disobedience against the holy God, if we got justice, was what? You're not entering the promised land. How many times does the New Testament make that clear? If you're guilty of one, you're guilty of breaking them all. And one sin against the holy God, you stand condemned. You can't enter there because perfection's required. Now we come to Moses, and he's sinned against God once. He's disobeyed God once, which in our minds that we don't think that's a big deal. That's the most catastrophic event that a, a rebel creature could do is sin against the holy God. And we say that's not fair. No, that's more than fair. And it's exactly the reason uh, that 
this whole thing of why Moses wasn't allowed to go to the promised land is also symbolic. I've mentioned it before. Is Moses in the true promised land? Oh, yeah. He's in heaven. Don't worry. But he didn't get to enter this promised land here on earth. Why? Because Moses was given the law. Moses is being represented of the law. And what is one sin, if you're going by the law for your justification, it disqualifies you from going into heaven. So Moses, representing the law, sins this time, and God says you're not allowed to go. He's saying the law will never get you there. Do mess up one time, you're not getting there. However, Joshua, who represents Christ, comes and leads them into the promised land. But what's interesting here is he was to strike it the first time and speak to it the second time. And now we have, we know that the rock was Christ, so what's the point? Because on the cross, he was struck. He says, they're going to strike the shepherd, right? He was, he was bruised. He was struck on the cross. He was uh, crucified for our sins. When they, when they, after he was dead, they poked him and, and blood and water came out. And because of what he did on the cross, because he was struck and crucified and bruised on the cross, what is the result of that? Living waters can come to all who believe in that. And now, if that represents Christ and his, and his crucifixion and, and being struck and, and living waters flowing out of that in our redemption, then why did he tell him the second time not to strike it? Because Christ will only be crucified one time. He's not going to go back on the cross again. He's not going to have to go through that again. None of that's going to happen. So now, how does one place their faith in Christ? They confess it with their what? Their mouth. You see, now you speak to the rock. He's already been struck. That water's available to those who believe and with confession. It's a part of it brings about salvation, isn't it? It's what Roman, uh, yeah, that's what Romans tells us. If you confess, see, it's a speaking. Now we speak to Christ. We pray to Him, and that is the difference because He was struck once, never to be struck again. There's a lot of symbolism in those things as well. We pray for guidance. We pray for all the things now to God because of His work on the cross. All right, let's finish this thing up. The Feast of Booths. They were to come and they were to gather in these booths. Now you kind of know the backstory. Why? Because they were going to remember how Christ tabernacled with them, dwelt with them, and led them through the wilderness to the Promised Land. That was to be their remembrance. They would come and they would literally live in tents and booths for a week. That was what it was. But this was, there's some intricacies here that you have to see that in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 10 through 13, it's not just available to the children or to the people of Israel by descent there. It says the Gentiles were allowed to come and worship and learn of Yahweh in this feast of booths, but they had to come via Israel. Only through Israel could they do that. It talks about the alien and the sojourner in Deuteronomy 31, 10 through 13 that could be a part of this feast. What could that reference? An alien being a part of the Feast of Booths. It's the mystery of the gospel. You see it all the way back 
Deuteronomy 31, that who could partake of this Feast of Booths? Not just the Israel descent, but those who came via Israel, they could partake of it as well. That's spiritual Israel. It's Romans 9, 6 through 8. You see the mention of the mystery of the gospel and grafting of Gentiles into this all the way back there. All right, let's, let's get to the, the crux of this matter, if you will. If you remember the verse that I talked about earlier that we were going to come back to in Leviticus, it says this. It says, On the first day you shall take for yourselves foliage of the beautiful trees, palm branches, bows of leafy uh, trees, and willows on the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. So part of this feast of the, ta- or the, the Feast of Booths, the dwelling of God in of all these, this foliage and specifically palm branches. Now your mind starts to wonder, wait, well, I've heard of palm branches in the Bible before. How does that fit into the, everything? Remember, the Feast of Booths is God dwelling with His people, guiding him through, them through. But it's also going to reference what He does to us now. He's dwelling with us now in our tent through this journey of life. But in its ultimate finality, it will take place when we dwell with Him permanently in the promised land. Listen to this. You remember how when we started this, we said in John chapter 1, verse 14, it said, in the, in the Word became flesh and dwelt among us or pitched His tent or tabernacled us. And this idea of a tent and, and tabernacling and dwelling goes back to the Old Testament. And John 14, 1, 14 says this is what happened when Christ came. Now, we also have a reference of palm branches, don't we? Maybe this will sound familiar to you in John chapter 12, verse 12 through 13. On the next day, the large crowd came who had come to the feast. When they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of what? Of the palm trees. And went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Whoa, wait a minute. You see how this all ties together? What I say, he took on flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled us. In the Old Testament, they were to take the palm branches as a, as a, 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 a remembrance of this feast. And now as he's tabernacling the people there in his, in his hypostatic union, what is present? Palm branches, because he's coming to dwell and tabernacle his people. You see, you can't look at his coming into Jerusalem ever the same. You have to go back and you have to look at the Feast of Booths. You have to look at them in the Old Testament. You have to look at the palm branches. And this is the symbolic reference of why they're waving this and placing them down, because he's come to tabernacle when he comes to this earth. But it doesn't stop there. Because if you go on to read in Revelation chapter 7, maybe you've read this before, and maybe you've just wondered, why in the world are they talking about palm branches and trees in Revelation 7? Well, let's read it. Verse 9 through 17. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation. Yeah, it's a mystery of the gospel, all nations. And all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. And what was in their hands? Palm branches were in their hands. Have you ever read that? Have you ever wondered why they got, they got palm branches for it's a scene in heaven. What, what are you doing with palm branches? Well, let's go back to the Feast of Booths. 
came to tabernacle with his people, didn't he, in the Old Testament. He dwelt among them. He guided them. And now he lives in us, in this earthly tent. He's tabernacling us. He's leading us through our wilderness journey. He came to this earth, and he entered in Jerusalem, and they're waving the palm branches because he came to tabernacle them there. But now we're in heaven, and we got palm branches. Why? Because this is the ultimate Feast of Booths. Because one day we will stop being nomads. We'll stop being exiles. And those palm branches, you know what I believe they're representing? All of his believers, with them in their hands. Maybe it says that they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It said, and the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessed it, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered saying to me, these are the one, these who are clothed in white robes. Who are they who, uh, and where have they come from? I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones that have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him night and day in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. You see that? That's what it says in Revelation 7, 15. It says the saints have the palm branches in their hands. All the way back to the Feast of Booth. All the way back to him coming and tabernacling when he came into Jerusalem and on this earth. And now it says they've got the palm branches in their hands. And it says that he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. The final tabernacle, the final dwelling, the final promised land. It's when we're finally home. It's when we're finally in the presence of God to dwell with Him forever. Isn't that mysterious? Here's some palm branches in the book of Revelation. And just a few verses later, it says He tabernacled His people. See, when we look at the Old Testament, we say, what are those people doing in tents? And why in the world would they come to Jerusalem and live in tabern or tents for seven days? And why would they wave palm branches when Christ came? What is this all talking about? He dwelt with His people then. He dwells inside of us now. But these earthly tents will give way one day to when we're finally home. To when we as exiles take our first step home. And the palm branches are just like they were throughout the rest of the Bible. Only this time it'll mean we've come to dwell with God forever. And He will tabernacle us for all eternity. Revelation 21, verse 1 through 4 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, 
Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. Where was the tabernacle out in the Old Testament? It was among them, wasn't it? The tabernacle was dead in the center, and all the tents were all around it. And now we have this the final completion in eternity. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And here comes this word again. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He was among them in the tabernacle. That was where he was at. Now he's in us. But one day, we're going to be with him. We're going to see him. He's going to tabernacle us forever and ever and ever. Every step, every journey on this wilderness path. Keep going. Keep following Christ. Keep leading, letting the Holy Spirit lead you in every aspect of life. Get your palm branches ready. Because as they were coming in saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the Word has become flesh and dwelt among us. One day, we're going to dwell among Him forever. He will be our God. And we will be his people. And oh, if it doesn't get any better than that, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Last thing I wrote here. We, have finally, we are finally being tabernacled by Yahweh. We are in the promised land. Our earthly tents have been done away with in lieu of our permanent residence. And just because we've been in First Peter, we as exiles will take our first step home be tabernacled with God forever. You see? How much more beautiful is the Old Testament? You see, the Feast of Booths is the last in this, right? It starts with a Passover. Then it's the Feast of, uh, of Unleavened Bread. Then it's the Feast of First Fruits, His Resurrection. Then 50 days later, it's the Feast of uh, uh, the Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. And then it's the Feast of Trumpets. And then, it's, and then it's the Day of Atonement. And then it ends with our final dwelling with God in heaven. Not a tent that gives way, but permanent residence with Him forever. So, there's a lot to that. We went through it kind of quickly, as quick as I can for covering a 40-year wilderness trek. <laughs> but I want you to see the picture of the Feast of Booths, how it's pointing to Christ in the old, in the new, and in the future. I hope you can agree with me. This is our last feast. We won't be here next week. So this is going to be our last type and shadow for a little while. We'll be in Florida next week. This is the ending of the seven feasts. But I hope that tonight and all the others, you can agree with me on two things, and you know what they are. I hope that you can say that the Bible is better than what we've made it. And when we look at the Feast of Booths and all the feasts and all the New Old Testament, we could truly say there's more to the story.